thank you, Lindy, for having, where did you go? There you go. Thank you for having me and also for asking Mitch. There is no telling like what he's going to say, but last night he was running to his computer and saying, get away. You'll understand in a little bit. Um, so now that makes sense, but any opportunity he gets, he is going to tell somebody I grew up in the carnival. So let me explain very quickly. It is like his fun fact about me, but, um, so the, the fair or the Pensacola fair is coming up. I, um, live in Pensacola right now. So, um, so that type of fair is what it is. Some people get confused with like carnival cruise is, which would be fun, but not what it is. So like the county fair type thing, ours was a little bit bigger, but for eight months out of the year, we would travel the East Coast and for four months we would be in Georgia, which is where I am from. So for 13 years, that is what my family did. So um, the rides, the games, my family was game owners. So when you go to play those games, um, those would have been owned by my parents. And um, there are children there. Can you even believe it? I mean, it's just the wildest thing to think about. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I grew up. So my formative years, that's what it was. And you can imagine um, there was very little God in it. And so we'll talk a little bit about that to come. But I do just want to say thank you for having me. This is beautiful. This is my first time at Alberta Church. Um, and this is beautiful. So Lindy and whoever your ministry team is, well done. I think we just need to give them a round of applause. Because knowing what goes into a night like this, the months of prayer, the weeks of preparation, all the people to make this possible for you. Um, I have had the privilege to serve women in the local church for the last 13 years. And um, I think now more than ever, like we need to be really investing in our local churches. And I think we see that um, in a lot of ways, but to do a night like this is a lot of work. So thank you women, whoever you are, wherever you are, this is a gift and this was created intentionally and purposely for you. So the eating's fun, the giveaways are fun, but more than anything else, corporate worship and time in God's word is what they care about most. Um, and so I just want to say hello and welcome. I'm Brooke. I'm Mitch's wife, which I don't know if you know Mitch, but um, about a year ago, almost a year ago in January, my family moved to Pensacola to join the Point Church. Um, my husband is the teaching pastor there, and um, we have not yet been here a year, but it's coming up. And as Mitch mentioned, I'm better known as Scout, who is our seven-year-old, and Atlas, who is our five-year-old, as their mom. And apart from teaching them letter sounds and reading aloud, um, I love any opportunity I get to open God's word with women. And so thank you for having me. Um, it has been a privilege to have this book in my hand and in a language I can understand. So just a fun fact, church history, um, I love it. Um, it is something I would love even to like study more. But in October of 1536, William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake for translating this book into English. So I'm a firm believer that there are no pink parts and blue parts to the Bible. There are not parts just for women and just for men. And I think that as women, we need to read all of it. 
And I'm a one trick pony. So Lindy and you asking me, I really believe that it is God's word that does God's work and God's people. So let's get after it. But just so you know where I'm coming from, the Bible is God speaking. And we certainly don't want to be women that say, I'm not interested in what you have to say. God can be trusted to speak on every page of this book. And some of you are here tonight and you need God to speak. We just sang about him being a way maker and a miracle worker. And some of you are sitting here tonight and you need him to make a way where there is no way. And you need to see a Red Sea road made where there's just water. And you're here tonight wondering, does God have anything to say? And I'm here to say that what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said, that this word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is able to pierce between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is able to discern our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. So let me ask you a question that God asked Eve, our first, God asked our first parents back, back in the garden when they had sinned and then they went and hid themselves. You may remember this. And if you're new to church or Christianity, um, back in Genesis, God created a garden and put people in it. And those people chose to make a way for themselves apart from God's good way. And then as soon as they did, they were filled with shame and they hid. And God says to them, where are you? Now, God is omniscient. So it's not that he didn't know where they were, but he needed Adam and Eve to know where they were. He needed them to know that they were in hiding. He needed them to recognize that they were full of shame. So before we even move further, I need to ask you, where are you? Not because I don't know that you're in this room and in this seat, and certainly God knows that you're here, but do you know really where you are spiritually? You're here physically, but spiritually, where are you? And I believe that's what God would ask. But listen to one of my favorite descriptions. This is Peter. In the New Testament, in 2 Peter, this is what he says. And I just want us to listen before I even open our text tonight. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, For we did not follow clearly devised myths when we came, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him, this is what it said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for where we were with him on this holy mountain. So think for a second. Peter is describing the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, John, his inner circle have gone up with him to the mountain. And in this moment, he is transfigured, meaning that his glory was revealed fully. And they see standing next to him Moses and Elijah which is the depiction, the fullness of all the law, Moses, and all the prophets, Elijah. So he sees a glimpse of this, and that is what Peter's referring to. We saw the glory pulled back. We saw the veil removed, 
and we saw Jesus in his glory on that mountain. And we heard a voice saying, this is my beloved son. And we saw Moses and Elijah in bodily form. And Peter then writes saying, we saw all of that, but we have a prophetic word more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I don't care what anybody tells you today. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried about from the Holy Spirit. Did you catch what Peter just said? Peter said that seeing Christ transfigured into glory with Moses and Elijah standing next to him and hearing God's voice that this book is a word more sure than that experience. Now, all of us can admit that we know some parts of the Bible, but if we're honest, we don't know much of it. This is like the church's little dirty secret. That was my story. I was converted by grace through faith at the age of 19. You heard a little bit of that story. I did not grow up in a Christian home and I did not grow up around the church. I was a freshman in college and immediately I gathered a group of girls, which happened to be my soccer team. I think they felt bad for me, but they were like, you know, instant besties because we were together all the time. But I gathered them and we studied the book of 1 John. And I know I taught things wrong. I know that I did. I'm thankful I have none of those notes and I don't even have that Bible study anymore. But that was 13 years ago and things have changed since then. I would go on, as Mitch said, to graduate with a degree in biblical studies and a concentration in theology. And it is possible to have a Bible degree and still struggle to take God at his word. Did you hear me? It is possible to be a Christian for 20 years, 20 minutes, and still struggle to take God at his word. You see, my salvation was sealed at 19, but my sanctification had just begun. And I did not have deep roots, but I had this degree and very quickly after I married this guy who is now into vocational ministry, who is a pastor. And I had a secret that I did not know my Bible. Now I wanna to read to you just quickly an article that was written by the president of Southern Seminary, Dr. Al Mohler. And I'm just gonna read a snippet to you and I want you to listen because this was me. While America's evangelical Christians are rightly concerned about the secular worldview's rejection of biblical Christianity, we ought to give some urgent attention to the problem much closer to home, biblical illiteracy in the church. This scandalous problem is our own. This is our own, and it's up to us to fix it. Researchers George Gallup and Jim Costelli put the problem squarely. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they do not read it. And because they don't read it, 
We have become a nation of biblical illiterates. How bad is it? Well, research tells us that it's worse than you can imagine. Fewer than half of all adults can name only four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. According to the data from the Barner Research Group, 60% of Americans can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. Bottom line, increasingly America is biblical illiterate. Multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. According to 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Those identified as born again Christians did better by 1%. A majority of adults think the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is to take care of one's family. Some of the statistics are enough to perplex even those aware of the problem. The Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. We're in big trouble. And the larger scandal is that biblical ignorance among Christians is not any better. Choose whichever statistics or survey you like. The general pattern is the same. America's Christians know less and less about the Bible and it shows. How can a generation be biblically shaped in the understanding of human sexuality when it believes Sodom and Gomorrah lived happily ever after? No wonder Christians show a growing tendency to compromise on issues of homosexuality. Many who identify themselves as Christians are similarly confused about the gospel itself. An individual who believes that God helps those who help them, themselves will find salvation by grace and justification by faith to be alien concepts. Christians who lack biblical knowledge are the products of churches that marginalize biblical knowledge. Bible teaching now often accounts for only a diminishing fraction of the local church's time and attention. The move, or let's just think of youth ministries. Now in the 13 years that we have served the local church, eight of them have been given to sixth through 12th grade. So this is near and dear to me. Youth ministries are asked to fix the problem, provide entertainment and keep kids busy, provide a safe environment for our kids to come. How many local church youth programs actually produce sustainable Bible knowledge in young people? 
Churches must recover the centrality and urgency of biblical teaching and preaching and refuse to sideline this teaching ministry. Pastors and churches too busy or too distracted to make biblical knowledge a central aim of the ministry will produce believers who simply do not know enough to be faithful disciples. It is up to this generation of Christians to reverse the course. Recovery starts at home. Parents are to be the first and most important educators of their own children, diligently teaching them the word of God. Parents cannot franchise their responsibility to the congregation, no matter how faithful and biblical it may be. God assigned parents this non-negotiable responsibility, and children must see their Christian parents and teachers and fellow students be fellow students of God's word. This generation must get deadly serious about the problem of biblical illiteracy or frighteningly large number of Americans, Christians included, will go on thinking that Sodom and Gomorrah lived happily ever after. That article was written in 2016. Do you think we have gotten better or worse? I think you're right. So we barely made it to our second anniversary, Mitch and I, and I mean that. I was a newlywed and new to ministry and I was done. Not because of Mitch, and let me just say this, that many of you do not know him and that I hate because he is wonderful, but I will be most proud of my marriage to Mitch when I get to glory. I am who I am today because of that man. You see, I had a heart for God, but I did not have a place for sin and for suffering in my theology. You see, the gospel that I was told was just add Jesus, pray this prayer, and he'll make it better. And you know it. It's the American gospel. It's the gospel we just read in that article. The moral gospel, the do these things but not these ones and God will love you as long as you're good or at least better than you used to be. And because no matter how hard we try, we can never outdo our wrongs, I was paralyzed by shame. Paralyzed. And let me just show my cards right here. Moralism will send you to hell just like unbelief will. It's serious, and it seriously is not the biblical gospel, and we better be crystal clear about it. Moralism says try harder, do better. The gospel says repent and believe the finished work of Christ. And I didn't know the difference. I did not know the difference. But the thing that reveals it is suffering. So my life was really bad before Christ, remember? Not Christian home, not Christian context. I was in the grip of sexual sin of every kind. My earliest memories are full of it and I remember as far back as six and I can't go further. I wanted to be liked more than I wanted to be anything else. And sin and suffer, I did. 
So you can imagine my surprise when on our honeymoon, I realized this is not what I agreed to. It did not take long. I was 20 years old and 20 years of sin was exposed because I got married. Now, marriage was the tool that God used to reveal to me what I really loved. It may not be your tool, but God will in your life now or in a time to come reveal to you what it is you really love. And he will use suffering often to reveal it. So I said, this isn't what I thought it would be. This isn't for me. This isn't going to work out. God, I did everything right this time. I got my life together. I did that repent and believe. I did that. And you see, I, what I thought was happening is this was my conversation with God. I thought that because I was saved and then changed and did everything in the right order, the right way with Mitchell Ray, God owed me a seamless and happy marriage. What I learned, God is God and I am not. And this is the truth that I learned that first year of being a Christian, which was also my first year of marriage. Unmet expectations reveal a misplaced hope. Unmet expectations reveal a misplaced hope. So my hope was not in Christ and in his mercy, he made that crystal clear. He revealed to me my wrong thinking about him, my wrong practices that led to wrongdoing. And the way out of that pit and every pit after it is repentance. So each one of you tonight, you have your own story. And if I could sit down with each one of you, you would start to tell it to me. And I would love to hear it. You have a story of one you wish wasn't yours. Or perhaps maybe you wish it wasn't your daughter's. Or maybe your mother's. Or maybe your marriage. Or just that nagging discontent that no matter what you try, nothing takes the edge off. Maybe you have come tonight with unmet expectations and you're wondering, does God have anything to say? Remember that question I first asked, where are you? And our faith needs to be strengthened with a real hope and not a fake hope. Most of you have tasted the fake stuff and you know that you don't have time for it. All the flimsy inspirations and Instagram tweets the world offers cannot hold the weight of stress, fatigue, sin, grief, loss, broken relationships. You see, fake hope can't calm your fears when you sit in the doctor's office and they say, we have bad news. Fake hope can't pick your broken heart from the floor after you lose your baby in your womb. Fake hope can't give you courage to come to church alone because your husband won't come with you. Fake hope can't ease your anxiety about that wayward child. Fake hope can't fix the tension building in your family. Fake hope can't look to the past 
or to the future and praise Jesus. No. Fake hope is fakety fake fake. Paul wrote to the Romans in Rome, the Christians in Rome, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus. Praise God that he has not left us to our own devices to plod along following the course of this world without interruption. He intervened. He has revealed himself in his word and he sent his son who is the word made flesh. Did you catch that? In God's word, the Bible, we read about the word who was Christ and about our real story, about real hope. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to take a second, a little bit, and we're going to look at what I believe will help us understand what it means to live in light of these truths. So in 2 Timothy, we're going to camp out in chapter 3. But just to give you some context, because context is king, we don't just want to open God's word and flip to it. And just so you know, I have printed out the verses in my notes, so I know my Bible is down here. I don't have room up here. So I do want you to open your Bible so that you can see I am teaching and reading from God's Word. But 2 Timothy is written by Paul to Timothy. Now, if you don't know about Paul or Timothy, Paul was changed by the gospel. And he was on his way to persecute Christians. And he was blinded by a light. And the Christians he was going to persecute, he then went to tell them about Jesus. Paul would then be known as our greatest missionary, planning so many churches, being the greatest evangelist to the Gentiles, which looking in this room, I don't think any of us are Jewish, so that would be all of us. We are so grateful. And then Timothy, Paul would meet on one of his trips. And Timothy became like a son to Paul, certainly a spiritual one and in other ways kind of a physical one. And so 2 Timothy, what we're going to read, we're not going to be able to read the whole book tonight because I, I do think you want to go home and go to sleep, although we could stay for a while. But this is going to be Paul's last letter. So most of our New Testament, all of those epistles and those letters, the majority of them are written by Paul. This is going to be the last one that Paul writes. And when you read the letter from start to finish, as you should always do, you're going to hear his urgency. He's going to repeat several things. And he knows that this is going to most likely be his last letter that he writes. And you can feel what he is saying. And so it's almost like Paul is saying, Timothy, don't get this wrong. Don't get this wrong. Over and over you're going to hear, guard the deposit, stand firm, hold fast. And so in his final letter, it is incredibly personal, but it's not private. 
So this letter was not just for Timothy to read in the comfort of his living room. It was going to be read to the congregation, but it was addressed to Timothy. And here's something that's interesting is that although Timothy was going to open this letter and read it, it was a personal letter, you know, from a father to a son, he's going to read it to the congregation. And here's what I love about that and what love about Paul and that reasoning is that the congregation, its members were going to know what to look for in a pastor, what to hold Timothy to, and then the other side of that coin, right? They were going to then hear their job too. And I love that. And so in this letter, Paul is aware that his end is near. And so he's going to pass the mantle of ministry to Timothy. And so in summary, I just want to point out these couple of things. Here's what you see. He is exhorting him to continue faithful to his duties. He is encouraging him to hold on to sound doctrine. He is encouraging him to avoid error. He's encouraging him to accept persecution for the gospel. And he's encouraging him to put his confidence in scripture and preach relentlessly. That is the summary of this book. And so we're going to focus our attention on chapter three. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead. Verse one. But understand this. Now imagine he's like calling Timothy, right? Like if we were sitting over coffee and I had something I needed just for you to listen, I would maybe lean over and say, now listen, here's what I'm going to say. I've been here. I've done that. This is the last chance I'll have with you. You can feel that. But understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Now jump down to verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystria, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. In this chapter, Paul summons Timothy and us to continue. He contrasts those who continue in the gospel and those who do, do not. Did you hear it? That first section, right? Those first verses, the lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, that description should be very chilling to us. The description of lovers of self, think about that. It's unsettling because it describes a garden variety of selfishness that we all battle. Anybody battle any of those today? Just today. And it's disconcerting because these people appear godly. Who is in God's house this morning on the Lord's day? Yeah. And here's what's interesting. How often we are arrogant, heartless, slanderous on the way to church or right after it or in the hallways or in that sweet courtyard. And then we enter church with the appearance of godliness. The problem is that between the car and the church, there's no repentance. And therefore, there's no transformation. Paul warns us to avoid such people. His words are clear. And then he exposes their strategy, which interestingly is the same that Satan used in the garden. Remember I talked about that? They sneak in and invert the creation order by going to the women. The households they crept into were probably the homes where the churches were meeting. Okay, remember first century Churches met in homes. So these people were sneaking into the house churches. They were identifying these women in the church. Now, let me be clear. I am a woman. Paul is not blatantly in making an indictment of all women. No, he's very specific. Look in verse 6. Paul is carefully explaining that women who are vulnerable to false teachers, to these who appear godly, are weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions. Let's say that together. Weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions. These are the ones that are being led astray. Those whom the false teachers would seek to capture are designated with the diminutive literally. This is in the Greek, little women, which is used here with a negative connotation. It is the immaturity and thus the weakness of these women that make them childish, immature, that they are now susceptible to false teaching. Paul does not use the term to degrade women, but to describe a situation involving particular women. That he uses the diminutive, that word, shows that he is not intending to describe women in general. This is a specific, right? And what is it? Weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions. Very descriptive. The reason that these women are characterized as childish and weak is given two qualifying participle clauses. Now, 
The first time I took Greek, I failed, okay? So there you go. The second time, I aced it. But the passive participle means here overwhelmed. That's what it means. Anybody overwhelmed? Yeah. And it's in the perfect tense, which specifies that this is a condition that these women are continually in. Continually overwhelmed. Okay, Paul. They are overwhelmed by their sins. Not only are they overwhelmed by past sins, they are being continually led into present sins. By a multitude of desires, specifically for evil. Now, their consciences are burdened by past sins that have not been dealt with, and their lives are controlled by such desires that put them in a weakened condition and makes them vulnerable. Now, one wonders about the sins and the burdens that these women had that would lead them astray, that would put them in this position. It seems obvious that they were not functioning under their church's authority. It is unlikely that they were spending their time in ministries of the covenant community. Their doctrine of community was faulty because they were willing to follow divisive teachers. Social media, anyone? Let me just say this, and I have just really officially met Josh and the few of the pastors here. Let me tell you one of the most discouraging things for pastoral ministry. I'm not a pastor, but my husband is, and so it's kind of like we're in this together. But one of the most discouraging things is that we can stand up here, our husbands, and preach faithfully for one hour, however long you preach here, and then you will go and leave here and you will listen to trash during the week. Now, I'm not calling anybody by name trash and I'm not calling you trash, but I'm saying you will listen to false teachers. And then you will come back to tell us on midweek, Wednesday or Sunday, all that you listen to, all that you learned and how smart you are and how this guy and that girl and how much better they're doing it. And have you seen this ministry and that ministry and this women's group? That is what Paul is describing. Just remove the internet. So that's our application piece. Now, I'm not telling you not to go and listen, but I am telling you that when you join a church, you place yourself in a covenant family under the leadership of the pastoral staff here. And their job by God is to guard your soul from these people. That's what we will stand before God and answer. They will not. I mean, they will have to give an account. And so that's what Paul is describing in our context. And so their lives were already inconsistent with the principles of biblical covenant family. So their propensity to follow these false teachers 
where you can see not only enticing, but what was happening. These women were lovers of self and not lovers of God. They were life takers and not life givers. Once immature women are captured by unsound doctrine, they begin a never-ending, self-indulgent quest for knowledge. Did you hear that? Always learning, never able to arrive at the truth. That's one of the most sobering verses in Scripture to me. That it is possible to always be learning and never able to arrive at the truth. And Paul has already exclaimed and written in 1 Timothy 2 what the truth is. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's knowing who God is and what salvation means. Now, one wonders about the sins and the burdens. We mentioned that. So I want you to be thinking, what overwhelms you? Are you in a continual cycle of being always overwhelmed, always burdened? Now, apparently, these women were not involved in discipleship relationships with godly older women who would guide them to maturity. Their lives were already inconsistent with the principles, so their propensity to follow these false teachers was captivating and alluring and exciting. So Paul charges Timothy to not to be a lover of God who continues in the gospel, and he reminds him of the women in Timothy's life. You catch that? Paul has now described these women who are captured, burdened, led astray by passions. And then his contrast to Timothy is, now Timothy, think of the women in your life. In verse 14 and 15, But as for you, continue in what you have learned, have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. This is the second time he has used the memory of these women to encourage Timothy. In chapter 1, he writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Now let me pause here. He is calling to Timothy's attention his mother and his grandmother who taught him from childhood the sacred writings. Now Eunice, his mom, was married to an unbeliever. We can only imagine the prayer, the grace, the wisdom, and the strength required for these two women to teach Timothy the scriptures. They also kept Timothy involved in church. The believers knew him well. Paul, when he came to Lystria, a disciple was there named Timothy, who was a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was also spoken well of by those at Lystria. 
Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for all knew that his father was a Greek. That's from Acts 16. This is when Paul takes Timothy. Now, there's no mention of Eunice's husband objecting to his wife and mother-in-law teaching Timothy the scriptures. We don't see that. This lack of resistance is remarkable. Surely, the rest of the story is one of Eunice's obedience to the scriptural admonition to the wives of unbelieving husbands. In 1 Peter, he writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that in even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of, your, of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Perhaps it was this less than perfect situation that shaped and matured Eunice. She had to know and obey God's word in hard places. Now that's some of your stories. I was raised by a single mom. My dad left when I was six years old. And for solid eight years, I didn't see him. And for some of you, that's your story. And you are wondering, are my kids ruined? You're wondering, will I be ruined? Because of that. And I think of this that Paul gave to Timothy to remind him of where he came from. That as he contrasts those women who are lovers of self, he makes sure to mention, remember your mom. Remember your grandma. He taught you faithfully from a child. And you know what? It was enough for Timothy. By God's grace, it was enough for Timothy to be saved. And not only saved, but Paul then came to be a spiritual father, yes, but in many ways a physical one. Now, a fascinating side to that story is that Lois's relationship with her daughter and her son-in-law. Was she the one that taught Eunice how to love and respect her husband? Did she help Eunice navigate those difficult issues of teaching Timothy to honor and respect his father while teaching him to love and obey God's way? Was she the Titus II woman in Eunice's life? So let me ask you, who can you be a lowest to in your church? Because while to be a mom is certainly a noun, it is also a verb. Mothering is what we do. And whether you ever bring a child here earthside biologically, when you commit to a covenant family, you are a mom spiritually. There is always somebody behind you. Some of them are in this room and there is always someone older than you. 
And multi-generational ministry will be the thing that preserves the church in the days to come. Think about what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 78. I want you to follow this thread. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, a children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they would set their hope in God, not forgetting the works of God, but his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now follow the generations in that passage. In Psalm 78, God's command, fathers to teach their children, one, that the next generation, their grandchildren, two, that the children yet unborn, great-grandchildren, would tell their great-great-grandchildren. Four generations mentioned. When is the last time that you prayed for the fourth generation? I don't know about you, but there was about five or six generations before there was me. I hear stories of great, 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 greats going to church, helping build a church, and then somewhere in one generation, it was not passed down to me. So my husband and I are both first-generation Christians. And I think often about my great-great-great-grandchildren. Deuteronomy 7 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to the thousandth generation. So when Paul mentions to Timothy that these two women would bring to his mind, think of just the memories of scripture applied to daily relationships that he would think of. This set the stage for one of the most comprehensive statements of the power of the Holy Scripture to transform us from lovers of self to lovers of God. Verses 15 through 17. From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. When the Spirit of truth guides you into all truth, Redeemed women become wise, competent, equipped for the good work of this kind of spiritual and physical mothering in the home and in the church. God's word is the undeniable keystone for life and ministry. Now, I shared part of my story. I did not have, until three years ago, a spiritual 
mother from my biological mom. My mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2020. She is still here, but will not be much longer. God used a very tragic diagnosis to bring her to faith in Christ. And I praise God. Her life and quality of life is very different. She does not speak. She has a feeding tube and she's on a trach. But her name is written in the book of life. And I'll see her one day in heaven. But for me, I was 19 when I was saved. And so for many years, I did not have a mom who would teach me biblical principles until I joined a local church. My first spiritual mother was Laura Ford, who discipled me in God's word and taught me what it meant to be a woman, married, and how to be a faithful Christian. So no matter where, where your story is, maybe you have a spiritual mom at home. Praise God. Maybe you don't. That's okay too. That's okay too. The last examples I want to give you is when we look at this and what Paul does is that these women are examples that we read in 2 Timothy 3 of childish women who crumble under the weight of sin. But Lois and Eunice, they're rooted in God's word and they stood firm. And the Old Testament gives a graphic description of this contrast. Think back to Genesis 19 when Lot and his family are then told to flee into the mountains. And in verse 26, it says, But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. But then contrast, Psalm 144 says that our daughters will be like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. Now, interestingly, those words, pillars, are both used. But they are two different Hebrew words. The two words illustrate two kinds of women in the church. Some are pillars of salt and some are pillars of stone. God sent an angel to warn Lot that he's going to destroy the city. And he said, escape. Do not look back. Do not stop. Escape to the hills. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, the Hebrew word for pillar is neseb. The obvious intent here is to depict her stopped, trapped, and she was transformed as she was where she was. Still upright, but motionless. Lot's wife epitomizes weak women who are easily led astray by their self-indulgent passions. The root issue is authority. They do not obey God's word. They do not obey their church's leadership. 
So they are controlled by personal happiness rather than by God's glory. They are concerned about the present rather than the eternal, and the world applauds this kind of woman. This is the woman that our daughters, your daughters, your granddaughters are growing up to esteem. Unless another woman stands in the place. These women are trapped by immaturity. They may dazzle us with their seemingly picture-perfect lives, their brilliant self-sufficiency, but simmering just under the surface is insecurity, jealousy, and superficiality. It's a pseudo-strength that easily disintegrates. Sadly, they often think that they have all the answers without ever realizing that they're at risk. They are consumers of the culture and cultural ideas. This includes positions of prominence from the PTA to the pews. Two marks of maturity are one, submission to God's word, and two, a teachable heart that listens and learns from others. David would go on to write in that psalm, that the word palace that is used means temple. So David was thinking of women who have been shaped and smoothed to serve God's purpose in the home and church. These corner pillars were both beautiful and functional. They gave grace and dignity to the structure, but they also supported it. If these pillars weakened, the structure was in danger. David considers these women to be gifts from God. He would end that psalm saying, Blessed are the people to whom these blessings fall. Blessed are the people to whom God is the Lord. He is the Lord. And to those he has sovereignly claimed as, as his own, he lives in an, an intimate relationship with them. His word is their authority. His glory is their purpose. He is their sufficiency and their strength. Unless corner pillow, pillars stand on a firm foundation, they will collapse. Unless your home is built with this pillar, it will collapse unless your church is built with these types of pillars it will collapse are we not seeing that yeah lois and eunice were corner pillars their god was the lord they were thoroughly equipped by god's word to stand strong and give a legacy to the next generation. They are the examples of what it means when John wrote in chapter 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this God, he will exalt his name in the earth. And he is using women as pillars to do so, both in home and in church.
This peace he speaks of is more than a tranquil summer afternoon on the patio with lemonade or maybe a PSL now that it's fall. This is the peace that surpasses understanding over and against any kind of peace that the world offers you. It's the peace of God which in, is given to us by Christ. Listen to what the ultimate Passover lamb said, the Last Supper. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Don't let our hearts be troubled. Hours after he spoke these words, Jesus lifted up on the cross. His father poured out every last drop of wrath on his innocent son, and he hung on a tree. Three days later, the grave was empty. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven. The Lord's countenance was literally lifted up as he ascended. And a cloud took him out of the disciples' sight. Jesus gave them his perfect peace and his promised Holy Spirit. He gave them his name to spread the good news of his coming and his promised return. This is your duty. So as I close, I want you to think about that initial question. Where are you? Maybe a better question would be, who are you? How would you describe yourself? Would you be the example of the weak woman, burdened by sin, led astray by various passions? Or would you be a Lois and Enos? Now, right now in this moment, I don't want you to be looking around and distracted, but I really want you to take this time to ask that question. So let's be word dependent. Let's consume God's word to the hilt and shake the gates of hell with faith. Satan cannot make us trust our stuff. The gnawing pain of wanting stuff and a life of ease cannot destroy us. Because Christ crushed the idol of consumerism and individualism on the cross, we will suffer no lack when we trust Him. Our children will suffer no lack when they trust Him. So let's trust Him to be our daily bread. Let's trust Him to be our children's daily bread. Let's trust Him to be our disciples' daily bread. When we trust the bread of life in this way, we are prepared for him to take us out into the world so we can start passing loaves out to others. Christ's mission to glorify himself is our mission. And he delights in freeing women from the idolatrous consumerism and individualism so we can show the world that he is enough. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now, God, that you would just make it known. That you would locate us. Not because you can't see us and certainly not because you're surprised, but because, God, we need to know. 
We need to know honestly where we are with you, with others. And so Father, I pray now in these moments before we exit, God, that you would just, as your word taught us now, God, give us a humble heart and a teachable spirit and give us the faith that we need if we need to respond in repentance and we would do that. Father, and I just open up if people need to come forward just to pray, to humble themselves. They need to kneel. They need to go to a friend and say, pray with me. I need to share this. Thank God that that would take place in this place. And that God, by your spirit and by your grace, you would make each one of us like Lois and Eunice, set our feet upon the rock, God, position us as pillars that are firm. And God, we turn our eyes from ourselves and open our eyes to the third and the fourth generations, not only in our homes, but in our churches. Give us eyes to see and hearts to respond. Jesus' name.